0: welcome to Pentecost. We were all hoping that we'd be in our room together by now, but the doctors tell us it's not quite safe for all of us to be together. And so again, moving at the speed of love and at the speed of the spirit, we will be opening things uh, in wisdom as the shepherds and the team works together. And we'll let you know more about that as we go through. But this morning, we get to start on a very remarkable book. We made it through Ecclesiastes, and we made it through that sermon last week about move and countermove. But now we start to look at Job, and as soon as we say Job, some people's minds turn off because they consider it a very confusing book, for good reason. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna unconfuse you with the book during this series. And others, however, have reduced it to a cartoon, a flat book that just says, "You say Job, they say patience," and I got it patience of Job. Bad things are happening. Be patient and faithful. Wow, what a terrible distillation of this amazing book. This book is one of the most complex in scripture, but it is also, according to scholar after scholar who've studied these things all of their lives, the most theologically consistent book in scripture. It has one issue, one theme, and one theme only. And that is the problem of suffering. Now, this book is not unique in some ways, in that stories like this, where you have a righteous man who is then beset upon by the gods or by nature or by circumstance. And then that individual struggles through, morally and theologically works things out in his head and is faithful at the end, rewarded by the gods by nature by circumstance now this was a mesopotamian way of say of telling tells and it was a rather common way there for those of you that uh, didn't grow up in the bible uh, bible school and you missed that word mesopotamian that is a um, a long word which just basically means the land between the rivers that's uh, was often called the cradle of civilization today we would call it iran iraq uh, syria that region and in fact the the headquarters of it was Babylon and more about that later so the story form is not unique to scripture but it certainly has its height in the book of Job there are no fragments or other stories that come anywhere close to this that we've ever found this is an amazing book now did a real person named Job live and have these friends and go through exactly these things. We don't know, but that's not the point. The point of this book is not to convince you that a particular individual went through particular trauma. No, it is about us. It is about our station in this world, knowing what we know. And here's the biggie, not knowing what we don't know. And that's book. It, it, and again, it's laid out as a play. It's laid out as characters. There are there are different mentions in the, in here of very deep, powerful thoughts. But there are many things not mentioned in this book. This book is so old, and it is so universal. It is not limited to the Jewish people at a particular place and time. There's no mention. Of Jerusalem there's no mention of the Ten Commandments of Sinai no mention of Abraham Isaac Jacob no mention of any of these markers that we normally find that tell us who why when where because this is a bigger book it's a universal book and it's an older book very detailed speeches are going to be made in this book Very detailed theological wrestlings will take place here in this book. But here's the key. They are all speeches in the dark. They are all wrestling in the dark against the unknown with no promise of victory and no promise of even light to see what you're fighting against. We don't see a Levite priest come by. We don't have a Hebrew prophet. We have no hero coming by. There is a drive by in the book, but it is not by a hero. Well, let's, let's get to that. In fact, if you really want to dig into the book, you have to know the characters. I'm, I, I like to read books where I can remember who all the characters are. And those people that have to have, you know, a couple hundred characters, at least have a glossary or a list somewhere in the book. So I can, I can decide who the players are. Well, here are the players in this book. Obviously, Job. A guy named Job, he may be a real person or he may be every man, which is a linguistic way of saying he stands in for all of us and what we go through. So there's God and there's Job, but there's also Satan. Now, in all of this, we also have some friends who come and exchange uh, different speeches and ideas. We have Zophar, we have Bilhad, we have uh, Bill dad rather, we have Eliaphaz and then that drive by that I told you about a while ago. Strange character near the end interrupts the pattern of speeches. And his name is Elihu, and he comes in with both barrels just blasting and then disappears. But there's one other character which we need to acknowledge because he weaves his way through the book, but very subtly, the narrator. Rather like Ecclesiastes. Now people will say, well, didn't Solomon write Ecclesiastes? Well, we have no evidence of that. We have no really even strong tradition of that. Plus, whoever wrote it says, no, I'm a narrator. I collected the writings of the teacher, this of this teacher. And at the very end says, now let me wrap it up for you. This narrator is even more involved. He will show up from time to time, very much like a Greek play. And by the way, I don't think the book of Job has any connection to any Greek plays. But like a Greek play where the narrator will walk on every so often to explain what has just happened and what's about to happen. And then the characters will put on different facial masks to show you whether they're happy or sad because that's a, they didn't have scenery and they didn't have sec, uh, camera edits and they couldn't wrestle against CGI back then. So they had to do what they had to do, right? This is a play acted out for us that is about us. It's our story. It's not just Job's. Picking out, by the way, where each speech begins and where each speech ends is not for the faint of heart. We are not gonna argue these points. Some scholars have, and and they've made very good arguments, and they've gotten their doctorates and professorships out of this. We're gonna stay with the mainstream. The bulk of scholarship agrees about where the speeches begin and end, and so we're just gonna do that without question. I don't think it changes it very much if you wanna wrestle with it, but if you do, you are certainly free to do that. We have to do something while we are socially distancing. If that's what you choose to do, go for it. These speeches, um, they're very, very succinct, powerful, sometimes repetitive. So we're not gonna go through this book like we did Ecclesiastes, where we, it took us 13 weeks to do 12 chapters. We're gonna do this speech by speech by speech. So I'm gonna be asking you to do some reading, pre-reading for the day. All right, I hope we can pull this off. The Oxford companion to the Bible has this intriguing phrase when describing the speeches. All the speaking moves to silence. Job, who has done most of the talking, in the end, lays his hand on his mouth. That is one of the best summations I have ever heard about any book. The Oxford Companion to the Bible nails it. Uh, and by the way, you can buy the Oxford Companion for the Bible. that's um, massive paperback uh, on Amazon or, or such like get the used copies if you can get them. Uh, and they're not that much, but I love mine and the Companion to the Bible, but also the Bible Dictionary. There's a, There are two or three of them that just stay with me wherever I'm going, whatever I'm studying. That said, the speeches that are being made, it's important to stress, our speech is being made in the dark. What we are hearing are not the words of God until much later. We are hearing the words of people in the dark. As far as we can tell, they have no access to the books of the Old Testament. They have no access to a temple, a tabernacle. They don't even know that those exist, if they did exist when this story was first formed. They, they are in literally a starlight age at best where they're trying to find light in the darkness. When people of the, uh, hear about this book, like I said, some will just say patience. Well, they've not read it because the patience of Job is amazing. And in chapter three, it ends. And the rest of it, he wrestles with his God. Now he's, he's good, but patience is not the byword for Job at all. This is about the problem of suffering, but there we run into another problem. What problem of suffering? Because there are several. One is, why is there suffering? Where did it come from? Why does it exist? What are its origins and cause? We're gonna get some of this in this book, but we're not gonna get any satisfactory answers. Not for that one. Or how about, why has this suffering happened to this person? By the way, when you read these speeches, you're gonna hear your own words because we use the same sort of apologizing and excusing and blaming and shifting around that these people did, it has never changed. That's why it's so important to know this book. So before the words come out of your mouth, we had a lady in a church I served once who had been in poor health for years and years and years. Another health crisis hit and the words actually came out of somebody's mouth I wonder what she's doing wrong that she's always sick. Ding, 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 ding. Why is this suffering happening to this person? We start looking for a cause. This book is not going to help you with that. It'll it'll help you know what not to say, but it's not going to give you the answers that lie behind the darkness. Well, how about the idea? Because it is sometimes that suffering is punishment for sins, or we're just going to keep going here that suffering is to warn you not to sin. And yes, we find examples of both of those in the Old Testament and probably in our lives if we dug enough, but that's not going to be answered very much here. In Job's case, there's no known reason for the suffering. So some people default and they'll go, well, this is the plan of God. Let's not be quick to throw this into God's court and say it's on him this is his idea this book is not going to clear up for you the origin of all evil so what else is it going to do then what how can it help us it helps us find our way through the dark but before we get there I want to posit something to you which is going to be very hard for many of you to swallow and 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 I apologize ahead of time for the, the lack of sleep, some of you will get as you wrestle with this, but I wouldn't do it if I didn't think you needed to wrestle with this. It's very important. Wrestle, by the way. As Some down here would say wrestle, but please check the spelling. Anyway, um, we seem troubled, and we are troubled when we see evil. Why? It's a decent question. I know I get upset, and I know that I go to God and I complain at the courts of God. You know, I, I I stomp into heaven and demand to see the manager. I do that. I understand that that is our our instinct that something is wrong. And C.S. Lewis works a great deal with this in his writings, especially *Mere Christianity* and *The Problem of Pain*. Those two books are stellar, and you should you should have them. Uh, all of these things, we 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 want to know the whys behind but I can't help but think of Romans one. In Romans chapter one, we are told that everything we can know about God can be discerned about God from nature. Now, Alexander Campbell, who was part of the establishment of this particular congregation, along with Talbert Fanning and some others in 1833, he was very famous for saying, we have two books that that tell us about our God. One is Bible, he called it scripture, The other is nature. Well, after um, the fundamentalists grabbed us and the Foy E Wallace group and all this back in the early 1900s, we were, we dropped the book of nature. We we said the Bible is all you got, you got nothing else. No revelation, no Holy Spirit moving, no nature. And we were wrong on, on all counts. The Bible makes it very plain that nature is to teach us something very fundamental, not only about God, but about ourselves. So what do we know about nature? The philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote the book, um, it's actually an epic poem, uh, Leviathan in 1651. And if you've not read it recently, who am I kidding? Leviathan can be very heavy lifting. But if you can get a modern translation, because he uses the Old English spelling a lot of times, which meant make it up as you go. It wasn't standardized in 1651. Leviathan is about human nature and the world nature and how both of them are fallen and how they both interact. It is an impressive piece of work. And so if you've really got your thinking caps on, and I have no idea what that means, and you really want to dig into something, give it a go. It's in a common, there's no copyright from 1651. So um, have a look at it. But we get a phrase from him He referred to human nature and the greater world of nature as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Why? Because it is. We all die. We know that. We all age. We know that. We see loss around us. We see cycles of birth and death all the time. And yet we act like we don't see what we see. Because if we saw what we saw, we would behave in a different way. We wouldn't waste as much time, not just by sitting around watching telly, but by arguing silly things and by dying on every hill that happens to come along. We wouldn't waste our time if we saw what we saw and paid attention. But I love that last little bit. He says again, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish And short, and it reminds me of the old story that the uh, Pocono comedians used to talk about the two ladies that are in a restaurant at a a resort up in the Poconos, and they're complaining about, Oh, the food here, the food is so horrible, you can barely eat it. And the other one goes, And such small portions that is life, life is horrible in every aspect, and it ends way too soon. Um, Woody Allen and for all of his faults, and he has so many, uh, he wrote a comedy book without feathers um, some years back, and he, he brings that up as well. It's it's a horrible life, why can't it last longer? Well, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson rather, uh, 200 years later, 1860, wrote an epic poem called In Memoriam, little easier to, um, To get what Lord Tennyson was saying he wants to talk about the kind of evil that we see in the book of Job in particular the mind-boggling suffering of those who pray and are faithful and here he is limiting it to them he's not looking at the greater world of suffering but the suffering of the people who are faithful and who are praying the narrator speaking about nature refers to nature In the feminine, as most languages do, man, her last work, who seemed so fair, such splendid purpose in his eyes, who rolled the psalm to wintry skies, who built him fanes of fruitless prayer. The word fanes is an old English word meaning temples or shrines. He built shrines to prayer that did not, in other words, did not bear any fruit. Who trusted God was love indeed, and, and love creation's final law, though nature, red in tooth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. So we believe in the law of love. We believe in a creator who loves us, but we look around and see nature, and it with ravenous, that's ravine, with ravenous appetite shrieks against what we believe how do we balance this i talked to a biologist once who said it is a blessing that 99.99 percent of nature is mute and here he's talking about viruses bacteria protozoa any of this And, and the reason was he said because if it were not all we would hear our entire lives is one unrelenting scream as you look at a, at a meadow and it's beautiful with flowers and grass, trillions of things are dying in that as, as we look at it and admire its beauty. There's a point to all of this. Hang on. Every, I, I can remember uh, talking to a man with an Eastern religion and his people, uh, the genes, would actually, as you walk on the street, would sweep ahead of them lest they step on anything and kill it. They were more than vegans. In other words, they, they they took it to the utmost. We will kill no living creature. And I didn't tell him because I, I didn't feel it would be helpful. Every time you breathe in, you are killing millions of creatures because you are introducing them to your lungs. Oxygen hits them. Oxygen is a great killer of a lot of things. I didn't want to tell him. Uh, there are times where it's probably best to put our hand on our mouth, as Job will tell us. Theologians have long said that we live in a broken world, but they say that and then move on and most of us don't think about it. I can remember when I was a boy, that seemed grossly unfair. Why should I be scratched by thorns just because a woman ate an unauthorized fruit? As I grew older, I realized that their sins were no greater than mine. I, who had much more information and history from which to draw sin, and sometimes sin willfully, and wantonly, wantonly rather, and with enthusiasm. We all broke the world. The world is broken. Paul talks about it calling out in the pains of childbirth. That would lead us, and here's why we're, this big sandwich is in this sermon. That would lead us to the conclusion that nasty, brutish, and short is the norm. Pain, disappointment, frustration, failure, are the norm on this planet we should pay attention to this scientists estimate that at least 98 but the more common estimate is 99.9 percent of all species that have ever lived are now extinct that's quite a batting average i would not want to pitch against nature nature will win that's just that's the the fact. That's history laid out there in front of us. Rather, therefore, then, here we go. Here's where the lesson starts to be applied, all right? Rather than storming the gates of heaven when anything goes wrong, perhaps we should be slack-jawed and in wonder entering the gates of heaven to thank God that so many things go right. It's been some time ago that I did the um the thin places series and one of them was on birth and i walked you through the odds that you showed up in, and and they're just staggering that you have life the odds that you as an individual were conceived were born delivered safely and survived childhood are staggering the 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 amount against it and yet here you are and not only you all of your ancestors survived and most people 99% can't say this so where does this all come to job gives us guidance on how to suffer and who to be while we are suffering on a broken planet where nature is red in tooth and claw job shows us how to be how to keep pointed toward God even when your heart is broken and your spirit is in turmoil and your mind is confused, how do you keep looking at God, speaking to God? Job will show us how. And by the way, if you're thinking, my life's all la da I don't need this book, read it for the other people around you. And read it because one of these days you're going to need it. Not a threat. And not a downer, by the way. Life does this and we need to be prepared for it. This book was written, by the way, as we, as we bring this first lesson home in the next uh, five or 10 or uh, six hours, hang in, It'll, you'll be fine. And don't try to listen to my sermons at twice speed, by the way, because I sound like a chipmunk um, pretty much already before you speed it up. So just don't do that. This book was written probably a long, long time ago. Certainly the form of the story was. It it almost certainly reached its final form while the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity and written there in captivity to encourage the people on how to suffer well and how to be the right kind of person to handle the suffering. They were were vassals to a brutal kingdom. I don't even want to go into what Babylon did to people. Now, by the time that they left, the Persians had come in. The Medes, no relation, different people. Medes and the Persians had come in, overthrown the Babylonians, and they were much, much better. Persians, however, went nuts later. And so getting out was important. But God didn't just want to get them out. He wanted them to be the right people to get out of captivity. He didn't want them to leave captivity wrong, bad, bad. Mistaken, a poor character, and then head back to Israel. No. They needed to understand how to live like Job. Then they'd be ready. So the book arrives. Let's set up the book. I'm going to be asking you, like I said, to do some pre reading. Please, for next week, read Job chapters one, two, and three. Some of these readings will be short. Some of them will be much longer. But I'm asking you to be serious students of God's word to truly embed yourself into these and allow them to open your eyes so that you can see what you see and so that you can respond in a Christian way. And even if you're in the darkness like Job, who had no concept of Christ, except, oh, that's a spoiler alert. Not going to go there. Let's, um, By the way, as we go through Job, whenever we can finally get together as a full body, sometime we're going to do our Easter, and we're going to do our celebration. But let's just go through Job for now and see how that plays out. Fair enough? Job chapter 1, we're just going to read the first 11 verses today. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. Just real quick these numbers are symbols to the jews now we're not talking numerology which is silliness just forget numerology we don't use numbers like this we generally use um, phrases like we have lots of bunches of uh, a few a touch a scotch we use words like that when it has seven means the perfect number three means complete Uh, they can be interchangeable by the way and so you're gonna see sevens and threes in different forms and thousand just means super, super complete. So again, don't look, don't try to pen these into ordinals and, uh, and actual numbers of things, but rather this is a poem. Let's work with it, all right? He had great sons and great daughters. In other words, he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Do you see how that works? Lots and lots and lots. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. They, they played with the word 500 in a different way. We can talk about that another time. And he had a large number of servants. I find it staggering that they don't give us a number for that one. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Well, here's a, a, one of the clues that Job is not a, a, a real live individual, but a character in a story that is important for us to hear. Because we see no record of him outside of this book or outside of scripture sorry so again most people reading this in the ancient time would not be thinking about an individual but rather as a story with a moral application that is given to us by God for that particular purpose his sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three their sisters three sisters to eat with and drink with them When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. By the way, in in Hebrew, that does not say angels. In Hebrew, it says the sons of God came in there remember our series on the others sometime back a few years back there are a lot of beings that are not really differentiated and named in scripture and we're certainly not given a checklist we we are aware god is not alone there are not other gods but he is the lord of hosts there are other beings he works with that he created um, and here they come and satan also comes now the word satan Uh, The Arabs to this this day have that word, and they call it shaitan. Uh, Satan means an accuser. Now, in the Middle East to this very day, to send somebody into the community to see who is loyal and who is not, that person is known as a Satan, although they've changed the word a little bit because Islam has has really locked in the shaitan word. It's almost like a prosecuting attorney. It's like a spy to to check for disloyalty. And this being, who we would all call the devil, he is walking in heaven, and that seems to shock people. But in in the Old Testament, this is not the only time that there's an evil spirit somewhere in um, in, in the courts of God. And it goes on from there. He also came to them, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does God does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, please notice that whole idea that the world is so broken. It's when things go well that we should be rejoicing because we're just going, wow, what are the odds that that could have happened? It's proven here. Job's successful, but he's the only one. He's the greatest one. He is the one on the lips of God. It is so rare for somebody to be this good. And Satan, remember last week, Satan does not like you. He does not think you are worth the love of God. And he says, of course, of course. Of course, he, he's a good guy because you just keep pouring out blessings on him, but you dry up that tap and he'll curse you. That's the very issue we we talked about last week and it brings us, ushers us into this book. Keep this in mind. Two teams are ready to cheer you today and every day, the rest of your life. Hebrews calls them the great cloud of witnesses. One team cheers every time you make a righteous faithful loving decision the other team they cheer your anger they cheer your disappointment they cheer your rebellion so the question is which team are you making cheer right now which team will you have cheer later when you're on facebook or twitter or instagram which team's cheering you and your email discussions, which team, which team is excited about what's going on in your life as we go through this starting and stopping, moving back to normality. Well, next week, we'll look at chapters one through three and have the story set up a little bit more. One of the few truisms we have in psychology, and there aren't many, to be honest, it's a very soft science. The, um, and by the way, it's not an insult. There are soft sciences and hard sciences. Um, in psychology there are many things we thought were true that could be true and others that are not true but one truism which has stood through the centuries is this the cards we are dealt are important what happens to you is very important it can be wonderful it can be tragic very important but the cards we are dealt are almost meaningless compared to the way we handle the cards we are dealt What we do with those cards is far more life-defining than the cards themselves. Remember that. Remember to make the right side cheer regardless of how the cards fall. For in our world, trouble and fear should not be a shock. It's everywhere. It's always been there. Instead, we should be looking for light and the spark of God, and choose to define our life by aiming that direction. More next week.